It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Well, hello. Yes, indeed. Well, I wonder how the uh, Jewish Mafia in Rome are going to take on uh, the next phase of the uh, World War Three. Don't know. Look up Donald Trump and the Mafia and the Jewish Mafia, and you'll be quite amazed. Lots of things out there about let's see Jewish Trump. And gotta get past Alex Jones nonsense. Guy's married to a Jew, supposedly. Don't know. Don't know if that character. A surgeon dot com Jewish mafia, Mormon mafia, Fox jobs. Shocking Jewish membership decorated you. Of course, you know you got to consider the source too. So you got a lot on a roll camel saying this too, but they don't understand that they actually are practitioners of Judaism. They don't know what. Yeah, get rid of this nonsense. Rory Kahn and the shocking Jewish membership that created Donald Trump. Who's calling me now? You've got to be kidding me. Hello? 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 Is this a record? Is this a recording? Is this a recording? This a record? Is this a recording? No. Okay. Hey, listen. Um, well, actually, I'm in training right now, and I don't have the answer to that. But if you'd like, I can get my manager, and they can answer that for you. Would you like it? No, actually, I'm in the middle of doing a recording myself and doing a show. <laughs> So it's a bad time to call me. No, I don't have any money right now. I really don't. 
I'm on I'm on dis I'm, I'm on disability. What the heck is that all about? Okay. <clears throat> to troopers run drive. They don't have enough money. Why don't they give me some money? They got all these brand new vehicles and and everything. Get ready for their Oh God. Have mercy on us all. Okay, lurking here. It's Rory Khan. And the shocking Jewish membership that created Donald Trump. Of course, Khan, a Jew. Uh, lurking behind the... Uh, this is a forward.com opinion. Lurking behind the obvious query of how in the world Donald Trump became an actual candidate for presidency for the United States, there's a more basic question. Where in the world did this man come from? How did he become the walking caricature that he is today? One answer that is frequently given is his father, Fred Trump, a real estate developer who time and time again bailed out his son from the many business failures, established racist this uh this uh discriminatory housing policies that defended his son's early career and sent the pres- uh precedent for uh Trump men having no problem associated with white supremacists uh the KKK and the Ku Klux Klan definitely had an impact on Donald Trump. <clears throat> Anyways, of course we know that uh, Created uh, Al Pike, and right, and uh, the Judo Christians created it. So that's great front. Hey, tough dude. Do you talk to a KKK member? You're in a, Donald Trump's worse than the KKK. Let's put it that way. The guy, Studio Fifty One or Two or whatever it is, and checking out and looking at. Been involved in orgies and everything. Yeah, he's a real great guy. But there's another mentor who arguably had a much bigger impact on Trump than we see today, and that's none other than Roy Kahn. Those familiar with 20th century American Jewish history will know Kahn as a man who made his name as Joseph McCarthy's right baiting hand man a key figure in the ex- ex- execution of Rosenbergs of the Rosenbergs and the general uh, paranoic paranoic of terror of the Red Scare uh, that followed. Of course we know that the Jews were involved with the Bolshevik Resolution too. It's undeniable so the Jews get their hands on everything because they got a reason for it. They think that you're going and scum, and the <laughs> I mean, that's the way it is. And all you do is just read their Talmud. And... Uh, yeah, by the time he met, uh, and then 727, of course, is that magic number, 27. The club of 27, right? Uh, you're... Um, year old Donald Trump in 1977. There's that 777, right? The little god man that they're creating. Um, 
He was New York's most well-known, feared, and notoriously vicious lawyer, with clients who ranged from George Steinbrenner to the Archdiocese of New York to Mafia Don, Dons like Anthony the Fat Tony Sorlano. And this is interesting. It's all connection between the Jewish Mafia, the Italian Mafia, in Rome. What you're witnessing here, what you're hearing is the uh, the old guard, the standing guard that's been long, all has existed for th- several thousand years, you know, the Roman Empire consisting of these elements. The most powerful blocks we were just talking about here. That's not me being racist or just discriminatory or anything else. I'm just telling you how it is. Now, whether you agree with it or not, that's another thing, but that's the power structure. The Protestant Reformation, clearly, when you look at it, was really designed to weaken um, uh, the Roman Catholic Church this is especially after you got to remember what happened in uh, uh, 50 years earlier and uh, uh, what was going on in Spain and the forced conversion of thousands, tens of thousands of Jews, if not more, to Catholicism. So what would you do? What would you do if somebody caused you and your family to be forced to believe in something that you didn't want to believe in? Well, you know... Insur- um, insertion and uh, and uh, and all that kind of thing are just the natural consequence of all this. So it's just what it is. Not about hating Jews or Catholics or anything else. Really, not in the end of the day. Whether you hate what they do is another thing, but you don't need to have to hate them. There's plenty enough hate going towards you, so. Just leave it as it is. All right, back to this. As Michael uh, Cross recently pointed out in Political Trump apparently sought Khan's legal advice. He and his father were being sued by the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department for the refusal to rent to black tenants. This is something universal with the Catholics, with the Jews. They don't like blacks. And his attorneys, and very instrumental in the, the, um, the, not only the sex trade, but the slavery. And slavery still is present in our world. It might not be in your world right now as far as what it used to be, but in other parts of the world it's just rapid. White sex trade... Um, and even the black tree. And you can see that they're instrumental with everything that's going on here. With the the allowance of uh, tens of of millions of uh, uh, black Africans and Muslims influencing Europe. Why are they doing that? 
clearly is against their best interests. So why is it being allowed to happen? Well, the people in power at this point are all traitors to all their countries, and they are have a uh, dual citizenships, whether it's sometimes triple citizenships. So you give the idea of a triple agent like um, Kissinger. He's at least a triple agent. He represents the Jews, the Vatican, and um, then pretends to be, you know, citizen of this country and that country or whatever. Why is he uh, dictating uh, geopolitics in the United States? Well, because the United States has never been an independent sovereign nation. It is a corporate entity controlled and run by uh, Europe. Yeah, you could say it's uh, a British colony, but then again, Britain um, is still a part of the uh, European uh, community and controlled by the Jesuits in Rome, and, the, and you know, and they got the Jewish bankers, and so this whole thing that's going on with the BRICS thing and all that—it's just oh, just a fart in the wind. It's not going to make much of a difference in the day. And there are these this group of people, this unholy alliance between Jews and and uh, Rome. They they are the hundred. They are the five hundred million that are supposed to be left on the planet. The rest of us are going, <laughs> one way or the other. <clears throat> Where was I? I'm sure I started. Again. Okay, yeah. So anyway, so here we are. You know. These problems with black tenants, the attorneys had suggested that they settled. Instead, uh, Trump recalled that Khan advised him to, quote, tell them to go to hell and fight for the, the thing in court, in the court. Which they went on to do with Khan employed as lead attorney. Khan fought the case with signature levels of audacity and bluster. He not only attempted to counter Sue for $100 million, but he spent nearly the entire trial personally insulting and mocking the case and the people who brought it into court. Though <clears throat> the case ultimately ended in the, tr- in the Trump settling and agreeing to take measures to open Trump's projects to black tenants, they managed to add a stipulation that at no point would they have to admit guilt. Both Trump and Khan publicly touted this was a victory. I am not a crazy, neurotic Jewish woman, Donald Trump is describing. Okay. So, yeah, whatever. Um, the housing case was the beginning of a long relationship between Donald Trump and Khan. Khan! And it's C-O-H-N. The Khan man. Um, and the Trumpster. Where he blows his trumpets. His uh, right-hand stooge from Indiana. Uh, so you got the, the, the powers of structure, the power elite in this country, 
it's more than just Jews, it's more than just Jesuits, and it's more than just Freemasons, and it's more than just the Mafia, it's a combination of all and some more. Can't forget all the other uh, uh, organizations out there buying for power, including uh, the Islamic element in it, along with the um, the religious right element um, and all the false teachers that are out there. Good gosh. It's a, it literally is a minefield of just deception, lies, and greed. And by the way, the United States isn't any different than Israel or Moscow and Russia or uh, Italy or England or Germany. It, you know, it doesn't matter. It could be Brazil. It's all the same. It's the same organization at this point. The New World Order is just morphing and molding. It's the New World Order. So it's, it's been around for a while now. It really started to call us when uh end of World War II. And it's, and we're now seeing a two generations later where we're, we're witnessing. So it's a lot of it at this point is uh, mind control, mind games. Uh with the need, apparently, for these their gods to kill us. <clears throat> Khan would even draw up Trump's uh, prenups. Okay, we're escaping. But let's go. Khan would. All right, where Khan would use his connections in government and the mafia to garner massive tax abatements, zoning variances, and mob-controlled concrete work, without which Trump's grand high. Hotel, Trump Plaza, and Trump Tower projects never would have been possible. When Trump became the owner of the New Jersey Generals, a USFL team, Khan would file a headline-grabbing antitrust suit against the NFL, claiming that the league had an illegal monopoly. Khan would even draw up Trump's prenup his first wife, Ivana, which was notoriously stingy in its allotments, which would prove not to have provided Ivana with sufficient legal counsel as the lawyer Khan chose to represent her was a close friend and colleague. Relationship between went beyond the realm of professional. Khan and Trump were close personal friends. They would lunch at uh, New York's most expensive restaurants, attend Yankee games in Steinbrenner's box, <clears throat> sail on Khan's yacht. Khan would um, advise Trump on every aspect of his life, business personal. For years, they would take on the phone up of five times a day. Most telling, though, and arguably the most troubling, are the clear, profound evidence lessons Trump learned from his mentor. Lessons he continues to put into practice today. Khan, for one, was a master manipulator of the press, and his relationship with the mafia was defined by garnering as much press as possible, good or bad, and using it to his advantage. 
This relationship began during Rosenberg's trial, during which he became a household name for being willing to twist the facts to his own advantage and for continuing to um, defend his actions alongside those of McCarthy and J. Edgar Hoover during the Red Scare after it died down at the height of his power as the New York attorney cons public outrageous displays of viciousness, strong-arming, manipulation, defrauding, and general use of dirty tricks made him notorious. But he only used this notoriety to continue attracting powerful clients and give off an air of importance and invulnerability. Reporter Wayne Barrett, who covered Khan over many years, says Khan would often tell him, Wayne, you've written 34 stories on me and never said a good word. You have no idea how many clients you have created for me. Trump campaign defined as it has been by something spinning even the most vicious takedown of his increasingly outrageous actions, sound bits, into great press among his constituents has a clear place in origin. Another key lesson Trump took from Khan is his life's, his style of argument. If it could be called that, when confronted with a factual or ideological attack, the counterattack in most bombastic way possible. Like his mentor, Trump responds to questions about policy and the veracity of his statements with personal attacks and similar outrageous inter- irrelevant deflections. As Khan did during the Red Scare, Trump used conspiratorial language and unfounded claims in place of actual substantive arguments. From the birtherism to the many faces of straw man Hillary to uh, be her crooked Hillary, frail or dying Hillary or woman hating Hillary on any given day. Like Khan, Trump learned to be a walking contradiction for his own personal gain. As Cruz, that's K-A-R-U-S-E, wrote in Politico, Khan was, quote, a homosexual homophobe, mutantly closeted, but insatiably promiscuous, and a quote, a Jewish anti-Semite, and a quote, a trafficking and anti-Jewish sentiment for to further his cause during the Red Scare. So we got another, so here's another connection of homosexual. <laughs> uh, I tell you, this is a bunch of sodomites up there in, uh, in New York City and uh, the East Coast and all the power centers of this this world. It is a sodomite-run world. Got a bunch of sodomites. I guess you, to, in order to have power, you got to be willing to bugger somebody, another man in the butt, 
and have his poop all over your penis in order to be called something. I mean, it's just sad. How many guys walking around right now got somebody else's poop on their penis? It's just crazy. But that's the way it goes. <clears throat> what is it just called? The poop on the penis people. PPP, poop on, uh, P-O-P-P. <laughs> Pop. Pop on you. Oh, Pop O on penis people. Pop people, poop people, whatever. I'm sorry. I'm supposed to, <laughs> we're going to be getting into study more about uh, the scriptures and well, you know, we're just, this is the dichotomy. If there is a dualism out there, it's just this. Uh, good versus evil. That's about it. Evil seems to always be triumphing in this world. Right, where were we at with this? So, yes, so this Khan, he, he being the con man that he was, he was he's appropriately named Khan, was a homosexual homophobe, vehemently closeted, but insatiably promiscuous, a Jewish anti-Semite, trafficking anti-Jewish sentiment to further his cause during the Red Scare, up to and including the trials of the Rosenbergs and their resulting execution. Today, Trump, in a multimillionaire, is a multimillionaire with a history of labor exploitation. Trafficking and populist, trafficking and populist working class rhetoric. He is widely anti-immigrant, despite having both an immigrant mother and an immigrant wife. So he's just being talking out both sides of his mouth. You know, the good old double-headed ego. Uh, claims to support traditional family values, and quote, despite having five children with five different mothers, and much more important along the history of sexual harassment and assault allegations. And I end up marrying one of these, I'm not marrying one, having children, so I'm just like that, the opposite sex. How stupid am I? How well, stupid am uh, Pretty stupid. However, of all the lessons Trump learned from Khan, one of the one is arguably the most troubling. Khan was a master of exploiting the fear of others, be they communist, Jew, queer people, people of color, intellectuals, or anyone they could arguably deem quote suspect and quote to the national character. He effectively used this fear to target to destroy the lives of many people. All ultimately in the interest of personal power. The parallel here is startling easy to see. Uh, Trump's out, outright bigotry during the election, this election specifically against Latinos and Muslims, as well as his appeal to the blatant racism and anti-Semitism of a large vocal segment of his, of his followers is easy to track back to Khan and his Red Scare era tactics. In other words, he'd been playing you all like fools, but he thought that he was actually representing you. Ha! He's Time to stop listening to all this nonsense about anti-Semitism and everything else. 
When I first heard of Roy Khan was Trump's mentor, my reaction was surprise, if only because it seemed like a bizarre political mass mashup out of the realm of fan fiction. Once you really think about it, however, the real unsettling shock about Khan's mentorship to Trump is how much sense it makes and how brazenly the student is emulating his teacher. And this is uh, um, Lana Adler, is a forward summer fellow worker of the opinion. Follow her on Twitter. Okay. <clears throat> So I don't know, I just, just uh, I don't know if anybody's here. Because I haven't been promoting any of my shows, I just throw uh, my recordings, I shouldn't even call it shows. Anyways, I spent 46 minutes and then we got into Perusia. I got Kate sending me stuff. Thanks, Kate. If you hear this, which I'm sure you won't. You know, you send. She sends me emails, but we're diametrically opposed. She's one of these people that thinks that most of this stuff hasn't been fulfilled yet, and that the Old Testament talks about <laughs> our day and time. And you know what? I can't really hold it against her because how many of us have been under that awful power and exploitation? So. So, anyways, what we could do is probably just put this for saving some point before we get going. <clears throat> Judo Christianity, one of the greatest oxymorons of all. But you know, the thing is, is Judo Chrislam. Uh, this is what it is. This would probably the proper name to this point should be Judo Chrislam, Judo Chrislamism, where they create, uh, you know, power structure created, you know, uh, you know, all of it. So, you now coming from jewelry, which has been an integral part of the Roman Empire for a long time. Um, let's get back here. And <clears throat> just think about this. Let's go back into this. I mean, I might as well just go through this. I know we've heard it before, but why not? Repetition is not a bad thing. And since we're in 15 uh, mind control techniques both churches and cults use, from the wisesleuth.com, who actually is an atheist. Plus, that's the if I can understand it. If he's not an atheist, he's not someone who believes in organized religion, which I like. But I think he is anti-Christian, which he, he, I understand. Because the amount of time it takes to get to the point uh, to intellectually understand the religion, because it's been... It's such a fundamentally simple religion, but there's so much terribly wrong. with the dissemination of information to the uh, believers of Christ. And it's just terrible. I don't know. Uh, number one, mandatory regular attendance. Mind control techniques and high uh, 
Hypnosis do not last forever. Perpetual manipulation requires perpetual renewal. That's why Coca-Cola won't let you turn around without seeing a Coca-Cola billboard. Of course, no cult could send their followers to basic training every single week for a full reindoctrination, but they don't have to. All they need is one hour a week for refresher training. Big fancy majestic buildings. A Catholic once told me the reason Catholic churches are so majestic is because it helps illiterate illiterate peasants understand the majesty of the Lord. Even if that were the intention, which I'm sure it wasn't, the reality is that churches are artistic masterpieces meticulously designed to overwhelm the senses and make the viewer feel euphoric and humble. Just standing in an empty cathedral or mosque or synagogue will tell you that. Or any kind of temple. Could be Buddhist or whatever. It doesn't really matter. Or, you know, it could be the Scientology or the the Mormon temples or heck, look at one of those Mormon temples in Washington, D.C. where you go down the highway you're like, whoa, look at that thing. It sticks out like a sore thumb. A masterpiece of uh, Freemasonic uh, architecture and all that that entails. Just standing at the empty cathedral can put you in a trance state. If you're surrounded by images of people who made bigger sacrifices than you to the in-group and were justly rewarded, then you'll feel pressure to conform with their ideology without anyone having to say a word to you. Also, you're instinctively going to transfer your awe and respect for the building to the building's owner and spokesperson. So let's go back into these. Because it's just it's simplistic, but it's so wonderfully simplistic. He did masterful. This is a very good article. I don't agree with a lot of the guys says, but actually it's good to actually interact with somebody who's diametrically opposed, 180, um, at a certain point. It helps you grow. If they're willing to, so the effect most people are willing to do actually talk to you, interact with you in that kind of way, um, because they're not, you know, you know, we're just not conditioned and, and trained in the art of the rhetoric of debate, and so, but it's okay if you know, you train properly to actually interact with somebody who's diametrically opposed to what you see in, in the field but, and understand. In fact, it's a good way to, to grow and learn. And it certainly is a way how they use the um, Hegelian dialect, you know, as we, you know, we witness here, or just in the politics, red, blue, the purple revolution thing, all that nonsense. And they can go on and on for that. So, anyways, the two once again elements: mandatory regulatory attendance and big, fancy, majestic buildings. Now you know why they build these big things. They don't build this to 
to the true and living God because they lost the average priest. <laughs> Talk about priest, P, my parrotfish, Peter, Peter the parrotfish. He's got a care. He's just been so. He used to be freely, man, man, he just kind of hides. The biggest fish in the tank, and he kick everybody else's butt, and he just hides. Ferusia, a time of judgment. I like to friends and enemies of Christ. Uh, the Perusia by James Russell, Stuart Russell. And it was written in um, 1878. I had to get this from the Cincinnati Christian Library. It's the Cincinnati Christian University Library, the G.M. Elliott Library. <clears throat> it's all. She said, everything that's worth anything is somewhere distantly away. Uh, so anyways, if you get a chance, this is the book you should get for yourself. Especially if you hear what I'm saying and you can recognize the truth in it. This is your intellectual defense. I think the other thing is to get out of Smith's books. That is a good thing to do if you have the money. I don't have the money, but if I had the money, I'd get the Parisia right now. There would be three books that I would get in Emmett's books. Uh, especially on the, the uh, a guide to the Phantom Dark Ages, so that you have some kind of reference to what's going on. And um, <clears throat> it kind of changes the whole perspective of things. And if the ruling elite know that this is the case, that we're at least 300 years difference in the, the public calendar, the Gregorian calendar, and the actual calendar that they're actually using, then 1776 even has greater and more dynamic meaning than before. And that, that maybe the goal has always been that to establish the one world, new world order by this date. And it's a way, you know, of proving that you're in the in crowd by knowing that the date is different than... Um, what the public generally knows to be true. I want to see some. Something's going on. Something doesn't quite sound right. So, anyways, we've talked a little bit about uh, what's his face's uh, Jewish mafia connections. As if that should be a surprise to anybody, but it shouldn't be. And. Uh, it's just the big surprise is, you know, you know, you just have to realize is that why you can't actually talk about Jews without being smeared as some kind of terrible human. But that's a brilliant strategy, and it's always been the case. You know, you blame the victim. <laughs> it's always isn't that what's going on? We see it all the time. You might see it one way or the other. Um, I don't know. I just uh, one of those weird. You know, it really would be nice if I had someone join me verbally, but I guess as we go down different roads, and most people would probably not tolerate what I have to say, anyways. That's why it's not. I have to say, you know, what I do. If there is, I, if you could even call it a show, really, um, a community call that no community, the 
community that I have who listen to this community call are people who listen to after the fact that it's recorded, only because in order to have any kind of uh, logical, rational, uh, you know, some information coming out that's consistent, I just realized that I'm just going to have to do something else. Not because I am any more logical or rational than anybody else. It's only just because the monologue seems to work more effectively than the, um, you know, a two-way interaction, you know, the, so, you know, because inevitably everyone's thinking differently. There's no, we're never, I'm like, actually completely on the same wavelength, so. And anyways, so yeah, so here is, we got, once again, Khan, the Jewish lawyer, uh, who was oh, homophobic, homosexual, an anti-Semitic Jew, who used his, uh, uh, the skills of manipulation and confusion and chaos to make millions. He... Like Donald Trump, are members of the mafia. They organize mobsters in the East Coast, and obviously in other parts, sending out. We're talking about a, an incredibly egotistical uh, man, and this is the reason why he's successful in this world. A man who can't even tell people if he has ever confessed to God that he's a sinner. Yet, his, uh, in a saint talk, his uh, lodgings are dedicated to Apollyon and Apollo. He doesn't even hide it. The problem, you know, the, you know, he knows that the average person has no idea what they're looking at. The average person has no idea. And the only reason why I'm, my eyes have started to open up is because of the circumstances that God's created. Which I don't like the circumstances, but then this obviously was necessary to happen. What it is I get out of it, it is, I guess is not the important thing. So, I'll try to get back into reading here people walking in the rain, walking in the rain, walking in the rain, what a glorious feeling, so I'm something again, oh, so I'm happy again, it's nine o'clock, wow. Yeah, so Perusia, time of judgment alike to friends and enemies of Christ. The parable, parable, parable of the wise and foolish virgins. In Matthew 24, verses 1 through 13. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins 
which took their lambs and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And they that were first foolish took their lamps, and took no oil with them. But we wish, but the wise took the oil in their vessels with their lamps. Um, where am I out this? While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at the midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all um, those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Uh, and while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. And afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day or hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. <clears throat> and, you know, this is the, the issue, too, is getting the point that we're using this text. I'm not saying at all that I don't believe in Jesus Christ and I don't believe he was the Messiah. What I'm saying is, though, is this book, once you read it for what it's really saying, the all was fulfilled, and that now you're dealing with a reality that you're dealing with people who are pushing a false narrative and a false second coming, are becoming useful dupes in themselves, as I have been, in helping to perpetuate uh, this judo-christian or uh, judo-chrislam agenda in which a whole bunch of Jews and Muslims and, and Catholics and Orthodox Christians and whatever are all going to die for basically it turns out to just be a flat-out freaking lie. <clears throat> and they're going to kill each other too out of this great ignorance. Do we really want to be part of any of this? I just, the question is, I mean, any of it. Almost all expositors suppose that Jerusalem and Israel now disappear wholly from the scene, that our Lord refers exclusively to the final consummation of all things and the judgment of the human race. This supposed transition is rendered more easy in the uh, easy to the English reader by a new chapter commencing at this point. But has our Lord really dropped the subject with which he and his disciples had been hitherto occupied? Has he passed from the near and immediate to a far distant era? Logically, you have to ask yourself, that makes no sense, does it? When you're having a conversation, you, a, a one that a meaningful one, you stay on point. 
Now, of course, many of us, we've experienced our whole lives not having a worthy and meaningful conversation. And anything that we come close to it is a debate. This is what they call debates of this day. Anyways, back to this, the immediate to the far distant era separate from his own time by hundreds if and thousands of years, question mark. If it were so, we might surely expect some very distinct indications of the change of the subject. But there is absolutely none. On the contrary, the supposition of a new theme being introduced by uh, this parable is entirely forbidden by the express terms in which the parable opens and closes. It opens with a very explicit note of time. And Greek word, I think it is. And then then it says, then, at that time. There is no hiatus between the end of chapter 24 and the commencement of 25. Connecting link then carries forward the discourse and knits it into close connection as regards theme, time, and persons addressed. This is further confirmed by the fact that the moral of the parable of the ten versions is precisely the same as that of the good men of the house in the preceding chapter, viz. the necessity of watchfulness. The closing words, quote, watch therefore, for ye know neither the date nor the hour, end of quote, so evidently addresses, addressed the disciples are the very same which uh, our Lord had already spoken in chapter 2442, so that in both passages a reference must be to the self-same event. Um, Yeah, here's the other thing, too. Um, If you understand the true meaning of the book, then no longer can those who manipulate that book be able to manipulate you and turn it into something... Uh, mystical or to use the book as some kind of a moral reference book or whatever. You know, the book is the book. The book is about a certain topic, as all books are, and it's the carry of kind of themes. And then makes absolutely no sense to jump from one age to another. And this, it does not come with our own province to give a detailed exposition of this parable. There are theologians who find a mystery in every word, in the number 10 and the number 5 and the virginity and lamps and oil, etc. As Calvin uh, sarcastically observed, multum si terquent went down in Lucernus in this and Olio. I don't know what any of that meant. Suffice it to suffice it here to note the great lesson of the parable. 
it is the necessity for constant readiness and watchfulness for the sudden and speedy return of the Son of Man. Unwatchfulness and unreadiness would involve the penalty which beheld the foolish virgins as exclusion from the marriage supper of the Lamb. We find, therefore, in this parable, an arcanic connection with the whole previous discourse of our Lord. It is still the same great theme of which he is speaking, the consummation which was to take place within the limits of the existing generation, the concerning which the disciples expressed so natural an anxiety. K, the Perusia, a time of judgment, parable of the talents. In Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, and unto another two, and unto another one. To every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh, and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received the five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained besides them five talents more. And the Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, and I will make thee ruler over many things. And enter into thou, and enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also had, he also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents, and behold, I have gained two other talents besides them. And the Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, and I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I know thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that in thine. And the Lord said, and the Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I reap where I sowed not, and gathered where I have not strode. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money in the exchangers to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received my own 
with usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable, we find an evident continuation of the same subject, though presented in a somewhat different aspect. The moral of the preceding parable was vigilance, that of the presence of diligence. It can hardly be said that a new element is introduced in this parable. For the representation of the coming of Christ as a time of judgment runs through the whole prophetic discourse of our Lord. It is this fact which gives point and urgency to the oft-reiterated call to watchfulness. Not only was it to be a time of judgment for Jerusalem and Israel, but even for the disciples of Christ themselves. They too were, quote, to stand before the Son of Man, end quote. There was danger lest, quote, that day, end quote, should come upon them unprepared and unaware. This association of judgment with the parousia comes out of the parable of the good man of the house, and still more in that of the good and evil servants. It is yet more vividly expressed in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, has greater prominence still in the parable of the talents, but it reaches the climax in the concluding parable, if it may be so called of the sheep and the goats. It is not necessary to enter into detail of the parable of the talents, its lending feature is this, are simple and obvious. It contains a solemn warning to the servants of Christ to be faithful and diligent in the absence of their Lord. It points to a day when he would return and reckon with them. It sets forth an abundant recompense of the good and faithful and punishment of the unfaithful servant. The point, however, which chiefly concerns us in this investigation is the relation of the parable to the preceding discourse. What can be more plain than the intimate connection between the one and the other? The connective parable, quote, four, end of quote, in verse 14, distinctly made, marks the continuation of the discourse. The theme is the same. The time is the same. The catastrophe is the same. Up to this point, therefore, we we find no break, no change, no introduction of a different topic. All is continuous, homogeneous, one. Never for a moment has the discourse served for the 
from the great all-absorbing theme, the approaching doom of the guilty city and nation, with the solemn events attended thereon, all to take place within the period of that generation and which the disciples or some of them would live to witness. L, the parousia, a time of judgment, the sheep and the goats. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one through 46 When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and, behold, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on the right hand, excuse me, on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me no meat. And I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. And I was a stranger, and ye took me not. And naked, and ye clothed me not. And sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee an hungered, or a thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister unto thee. Then shall the, he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as ye did not, as much as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Up to this point, we have found the discourse of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, one connected and continuous prophecy, having sole reference to the great catastrophe pending over the Jewish nation, which was to take place according to our Lord's prediction before the existing generation should pass away. Now, however, we encounter a passage 
which in the opinion of almost all commentators cannot be understood as referring to Jerusalem or Israel, but to the whole human race and the consummation of all things. If the consensus of expositors can establish an interpretation, no doubt this passage must be regarded as wholly quitting the subject of the disciples and interrogatory and describing the last scene of all in the world's history. It may be freely admitted that this parable and the parabolic, the parabolic description has many points of difference from the preceding portion of our Lord's discourse. It seems to stand separate and distinct from the rest. Without the connecting link, which we have found in other sections, still more, it seems to take a wider range than Jerusalem and Israel. It reads like a judgment, not of a nation, but of all nations, not of a city or all or a country, but uh, of a world not of a passing crisis, but of a final consummation. It is therefore with a deep sense of difficulty of the task that we venture to impunge the inter interpretation of so many wise and good men. To contend with the passage is not only an integral part of the prophecy, but also belongs wholly to the subject of our Lord's discourse the judgment of Israel, the end of the Jewish age. One, the parable, though in our English version standing apart and unconnected with the context, is really connected by a very sufficient link with what goes before. This is apparent in the Greek, where we find the particle, and then they got this Greek thing, the force of which is to indicate transition and connection. Transition to a new illustration and connection with the foregoing context. Alfred, uh, in his revisited New Testament, preser preserves the uh, content. content continuative particle, quote, be when the Son of Man shall have come in his glory, end of quote, etc. It might with equal uh, property be rendered and when, end of quote, etc. Two, this, quote, the coming of the Son of Man, end of quote, has already been predicted by the Lord in Matthew 44, 30, and parallel passages. The time expressly defined be included in the comprehensive declaration, quote, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all things be fulfilled, Matthew, and quote, Matthew 24, 34. Three, in, it deserves particular notice that the description of the, quote, coming of the Son of Man in his glory, end of quote, 
given in the parable of talents, the parable talent, uh, in this parable tallies in all points with that of Matthew 21, 27, 28, of which it is expressly affirmed that it would be witnessed by some then present when the prediction was made. It may be well to compare the two descriptions. And Matthew 21, 27, and 28. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not test of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his glory in his kingdom. And Matthew twenty four thirty one through thirty three says, But when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, etc. Here the reader will note A that both passages the subject referred to is the same. It is the coming of the Son of Man, the parousia. To be in both passages, he described he is described as coming in glory. See, in both he is attended by the holy angels. D, in both he comes as a king. Quote, coming in his kingdom. End of quote. He, or, quote, he shall sit upon his throne, end quote. Then, quote, then shall the king, end quote, etc. He, in both, he comes to judgment. F, in both, the judgment is represented as, in some sense, universal. Quote, he shall reward every man, end quote. Quote, before him shall be gathered all the nations, end quote. G, in Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight, it is expressly stated that this coming and glory, etc., was to take place in the lifetime of the same, of, of some then present. This fixes the occurrence of the parousia within the limit of a human life thus being in perfect accord with the period defined by our Lord in his prophetic discourse. Quote, this generation shall not pass, quote, etc. We are fully warranted, therefore, in regarding the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 25, as identical with that referred to in Matthew 20, 20 excuse me, and 20 and 16, which some of the disciples were to live to witness. Thus, notwithstanding the words, quote, all the nations, end of quote, and Matthew Roman numeral 25, verse 32, we, can, we are brought to the conclusion that it is not the, quote, final consummation of all things, in the quote, which is there spoken of both the judgment of Israel at the close of the Jewish aeon or age. For it will 
still be objected that the very formidable difficulty remains in the expression, quote, all the nations, in the quote. The difficulty, however, is more apparent than real, for now, if that's what I'm looking at, really? Where happened to the rest of them? There's G. Mm, okay, whatever. It It is not at all uncommon to find scriptures, universal propositions, which must be understood in a qualified or restrictive sense. There is a case in point in this very discourse of our Lord in Matthew 24:22, speaking of the quote great tribulation the quote he say, he says quote except those days those days should be shortened there should no flesh be saved in the quote now it is evident that this quote great tribulation end quote was limited to Jerusalem or at all events to Judea and yet we have an expression used in regard to the inhabitants of a city or country which is wide enough to include the whole human race in which since Lang and Alfred actually understand it. So that must not be L, there must be one. Okay. <clears throat> Two. There is great probability in the opinion that the phrase, quote, all the nations, end quote, is equivalent to, quote, all the tribes of the land, end quote, in Matthew 24:30. There is no impropriety in designating the tribes as nations. The purpose of God to Abraham was that he should be father to many nations in Genesis Roman numeral 17:5 and Romans 4 Roman numeral 4 verses 17 and 18 in our lord's time it was usual to speak of the inhabitants of Palestine as consisting of several nations Joseph speaks of quote the nations of the Samaritans, end of quote, and the nation of the Batananians. 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 End of quote. The, quote, the nations of the Galileans. Galilee. Galileans, I guess that's how I can spell it. And using the very words, and then it's got the Greek, which we find in the passage before us. Judas was distinct, a distinct nation, often with a king of its own. So also was Samaria, and so with Edomia, Edomia, Galilee, Peraria, Batania, uh, Trachonitis, uh, Etruria, Abilene, 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 A B I L E N E, 
and all which had at different times princes with the title of uh, ethnarch, a name which signifies ruler of a nation. It is during a no is doing no violence then to the language to understand Greek Greek as referring to all nations of Palestine or all tribes of the land. Three, this view receives strong confirmation for the fact that the same phrase in the Apostolic Commission in Matthew twenty number twenty eight Nineteen. <clears throat> I think that's nineteen. Yeah, I think that one's crossed out now. I don't know if that is weird. Quote, go and teach all the nations, and the quote, does not seem to have been understood by the disciples as referring to the whole population of the globe or to any nations beyond Palestine. It is commonly supposed to the apostles no, knew that they had received a charge to evangelize the world. If they didn't know it, they were culpably remiss in not acting upon it. But it is presumable that the words of the Lord did not convey any such idea to their mind. The learned professor Barton observes, quote, It was not until 14 years after our Lord's ascension that St. Paul traveled for the first time and preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Nor is there any evidence that during that period the other apostles passed the confines of Judea, end of quote. The fact seems to be that the language of the Apostolic Commission did not convey to the minds of the Apostles any such um, ecumenical idea. Nothing more astonished them than the discovery that, quote, God had granted to the Gentiles also repentance unto life, end of quote. Acts, Roman numeral 11, Verse 18, when St. Peter was challenged for going in, quote, to men uncircumcised and eating with them, end of quote, it does not appear that he vindicated his conduct by an appeal to the terms of the apostolic commission. If the phrase, quote, all the nations, end of quote, had been understood by the disciples in its literal and most comprehensive sense, it is difficult to imagine how they could have failed to recognize at once the universal character of the gospel and their commission to preach it like a like to Jew and Gentile. It required a distinct revelation from heaven to overcome the Jewish prejudices of the apostles and to make known to them the mystery, quote, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the 
promise of Christ by the gospel, end of quote. Ephesians 3, 6. In view of these contradictions, we hold it reasonable and unwantable to give the phrase, quote, all the nations, end of quote, a restricted signification and to limit it to the nations of Palestine. And in this sense, it's... It's harmon- it harmonizes well with the words of our Lord, quote, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. End of quote, Matthew 10, 23. Five, once more, the pe- peculiar test of character which is applied by the judge in the, parab- the parabolic description is strongly opposed to the notion that this scene represents the final judgment of the whole human race. It will be observed that the destiny of the righteous and the wicked is made to turn on the treatment which they respectively offered to the suffering disciples of Christ. All more quality all virtuous conduct, all true faith, are apparently thrown out of the reckoning and acts of charity and beneficence to distress disciples are alone taken into account. It is not surprising that this circumstance should be occasion much perplexity both to theologians and general readers. Is this the doctrine of St. Paul? Is this the ground of justification before God set forth in the New Testament? Are we to conclude that the everlasting destiny of the whole human race, from Adam to the last man, will finally turn on their charity and sympathy towards the persecuted and suffering disciples of Christ? The difficulty is a grave one. One on one, me, on the supposition that we have here a description of quote the general judgment at the last day end of quote, and not not to be slurred over as commonly it is. How could the nations which existed before the time of Christ be tried by such a standard? How could the nations which never heard of Christ, or those who flourished in the ages when Christianity was prosperous and powerful, be tried by such a standard? It is manifestly inappropriate and inapplicable. But the difficulty is easily and completely solved if we regard this judicial transaction as the judgment of Israel at the close of the Jewish aeon. It is the the rejected king of Israel who is the judge. It is the hostile, unbelieving generation, the last and worst of the nation, that is arraigned before his tribunal. Their treatment of his disciples, especially of his apostles, might more fitly and justly be made the criterion 
of character, end quote, discerning between the righteous and the wicked, end quote. Such a test would be most appropriate in an age when Christianity was persecute was a persecuted faith. And this is evidently supposed by the very terms of the king's address. Quote, I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, was naked, sick, and in prison, end quote. The person designated as, quote, these my brethren, end quote, who are taken as the representatives of Christ himself, are evidently the apostles of the Lord, in whom he hungered and thirst, and was naked and sick and in prison. All this is the perfect harmony with the words of Christ to his disciples. When he sent them forth to preach, quote, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet, prophet, a prophet, in the name of a prophet shall receive the prophet's reward. And he that receives a righteous man, in the name of the righteous man, shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward in the quote Matthew Roman numeral 10, verses 40 through 42. We are thus brought to a conclusion. The only one which in all respects suits the tenor of this entire discourse, that we have here not the final judgment of the whole human race, but that of guilty nation and nations of Palestine who rejected their king despitefully treated and slew his messengers. And Matthew, Roman numeral, Roman numeral 22, verses 1 through 14, and those days of doom was now near at hand. This being so, the entire prophecy of the, the Mount of Olives is seen to be one homogeneous and connective whole. Quote, simplex dante ex so simplex done taxet et un um. That's a quote. It is no longer a confused and unintelligible medley baffling all interpretation, seeming to speak with two voices and pointing in different directions at the same time. It is clear consecutive, historically truthful representation of the judgment of the theoretic nation, the theocratic nation at the close of the age or Jewish period. The theory of the interpretation which regards this discourse as typical of the final judgment, the judgment of the human race and of the worldwide catastrophe attended upon that event really finds no continence in the prediction itself while it involves inextricable perplexity and confusion. If on the one hand it could be shown that the prophecy 
as a whole is in every part equally applicable to the different and widely separated events, or on the other hand, that at a certain point it quits the one subject and takes up another, then the double sense twofold reference would stand upon some intelligible basis. But we have been, but we have found no dividing line in the prophecy between the near and the remote. And all attempts are drawn such a line are unsatisfactory and arbitrary in the extreme. Still more unattainable is the hypothesis of a double meaning running through the whole. A hypothesis which supposes a verifying faculty, end of quote, in quotes, in the expositor or reader gives so large a discretionary power to the ingenuous, ingenuous critic that it seems utterly incapable with the review or the reverence due to the Word of God. <clears throat> the perplexity which the double sense theory involves is placed in a strong light by the confession of Dean Alford, who, at the close of his comments on the prophecy, honestly expresses his dissatisfaction with the views which he had propounded. Quote, I think it's proper, end of quote, he says, to, ta- to state in this third edition that having now entered upon the deeper study of the prophetic portions of the New Testament, I do not feel by any means that full confidence which one once did in exegesis quad prophetical interpretation here given of the three portions of this chapter in Roman numeral 25. But I have no other system to substitute in some of the points here dwelt on seem to me as weighty as ever. I very much question whether the thorough study of the scripture prophecy will not make me more or more distrustful of all human systematic uh, systematizing and less willing to hazard strong assertions on any portion of the subject. This is in July of 1855. The fourth edition of Alfred, it adds, quote, endorsed October 1858, end of quote. This is candid, highly honorable to the critic, but it suggests the reflection, if with all the light and experience of 18 centuries, the prophecy on the Mount of Olives still remains an unsolved enigma. How could it have been intelligible to the disciples who eagerly listened to it as it fell upon the lips of their master? Can we suppose that at such a moment 
he would speak to them in inexplicable riddles, that when they asked for uh, bread, he would give them a stone. Impossible. There is no reason for believing that the disciples were unable to comprehend the words of Jesus. If these words have been misapprehended in subsequent times, it is because a false and unnatural method of interpretation has obscured and distorted what in itself is luminous and simple enough. It is a matter for just surprise that such disregard should have been shown by expositors to the express limitations of time laid down by our Lord. That forced and unnatural meanings should have given to such words as Greek, 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 and Greek, etc., I think, that arbitrary lines of division should have been drawn in the discourse there. None exists. And generally, that the, pro the prophecy should have been subjected to a testament which would not be tolerated in criticism of any Greek or Latin classic. Only let the language of Scripture be treated with common fairness and interpreted by the principles of grammar and common sense, and much obscurity and misapprehension will be removed, and the very form of substance of the truth will come forth to view. Before passing away from the deeply interesting prophecy, it may be proper to advert to the marvelously minute fulfillment which it received as testified by the unexceptionable witness, the Jewish historian, the unexceptional. Unexceptionable, that's witness. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus. And uh, it is a fact a singular interest of importance that there should have been preserved to posterity a full and authentic record of the times and transactions referred to in our Lord's prophecy and that this record should be far from pen of the Jewish statement, statesman, soldier, priest, man of letters, not only having access to the best sources of information, but himself an eyewitness of many events which he relates. This is here, and the following extract is taken from the excellent article and the first volumes of the Bibliotheca Sacra, 1843, by Dr. E. Robinson, entitled The Coming of Christ. Up to, by the way, okay, so that's not exactly Josephus, but. <clears throat> 
I guess we can come back to it. Okay. It, it gives additional weight to the testimony. Now back to the Josephus there. Uh, that it does not come from a Christian who might have been suspected of partisanship, but from a Jew, indifferent, if not hostile, to the cause of Jesus. So striking is the coincidence between the prophecy and history that the old objection of uh, Porphyry against the book of Daniel that it must have been written after the event might be plausibly alleged were there the slightest pretense of such an insinuation. Though the Jewish people were all were at all times restless and uneasy under the yoke of Rome, there were no urgent uh, symptoms of disaffection at the time when the Lord delivered this prediction of the approaching destruction of the temple, the city, and the nation. Higher classes were profuse in their professions of loyalty to the imperial government. Quote, we have no king but Caesar's, end of quote, was their cry. It was the policy of Rome to grant the free exercise of their own religion to the subject provinces. There was therefore no apparent reason why the new and splendid temple in Jerusalem should not stand for centuries. And Judah enjoyed a greater tranquility and prosperity under the what are you, Aegis, I guess, or Aegis? Yeah, I guess Aegis of Caesar than she had ever known under her native princes. Yet before the generation which rejected and crucified the son of David had wholly passed away, the Jewish nationality was extinguished. Jerusalem was a desolation. The holy and beautiful house, in quotes, on, the, on Mount Zion was razed to the ground. The unhappy people who knew not the time of their visitation were overwhelmed by calamities without a parallel in the annals of the world. Let me go back. I might not go back to what I said. I was going to go back to with a different. I guess those just be kind of footnotes. A footnote. The following extract of the really excellent article of the volumes of the Bibliotheca Sacra. Anyway, I don't know if I'll go back to that now. It looks like something worth looking at, too. But maybe I will, maybe I won't. Okay, where was I at in all this? Okay, um, it, all this is undeniable. Yet it would be too much to expect that this will be regarded as adequate fulfillment of the Savior's words by many who, whom prejudice or traditional interpretations have taught to see more in the prophecy than ever inspiration included in it. I go back to there. Yet, okay. 
Yet the generation which rejected and crucified the son of David, who had wholly passed away, the Jewish nationality was extinguished. Jerusalem was a desolation. The holy and beautiful house on the Mount Sinai was raised to the ground. The unhappy people who knew not the time of their visitation were overwhelmed by the calam- by calamities without peril in the annals of the world. <clears throat> I will just go back to this thing. This is kind of a little deviation. But anyways, the following extract is taken from an excellent article in the first volume of the Bibliotheca Sacra, 1843, by Dr. E. Robinson, entitled The Coming of Christ, up to verse 42, chapter Roman numeral 24 of St. Matthew's. Dr. Robinson maintains the exclusive reference of the prediction of Jerusalem and thus notice the interpretations which refer to refer it to the quote end of the world end of quote. The question now arises whether under these limitations of time a reference of our Lord's language uh, to the day of judgment and the end of the world and our sense of these terms is possible. Those who maintain this view attempt to dispose of the difficulties arising from these limitations in different ways. Some assign the, looks like a Greek word, the meaning suddenly as it is employed by the LXX, or uh, I guess it would be what the heck is that? One hundred and twenty. I guess in Job, verse three of the Hebrew, then a Hebrew word. But even in this passage, the purpose of the writer is simply to mark an immediate consequence or an immediate sequence. Excuse me, to intimate. Another that another and consequence events happens forthwith, nor with anything but nor with anything be gained even could the um I think so we lost a word here W O R then it's got smudged out and then a Roman word. Thus disposed of so long as the the subsequent limitations to the race of the Jews and to the disciples of Christ, not only without the applying force uh, to the meaning of the language are in vain and are now abandoned by most commentators of note. After so luminous an exposition, it is disappointing to find Dr. Robertson failing uh, to carry out the principles with which he started consistently to the end, embarrassed by the foregone conclusions that the final judgment, in quotes, and the, quote, end of the world, in quote, end quote, are somewhere to be found in the prophecy and unable to see where the theme of the Jerusalem ends and the other and greater theme of the world's catastrophe begins, he adopts the following method, starting with the assumption 
that the parable of the sheep and the goats must describe a later event. He feels his way backwards to get the preceding parable of the talents in which he finds this, the same subject and doctrine of final retribution. Going still further back in the parable of the ten virgins, he finds the object of the parable to be the incalculation of the same important truth. The 25th chapter of St. Matthew must therefore he concludes, refer wholly to the transaction of the last great day. But he continues, quote, The latter portion of the chapter of 24, is from verse 43 to 51, is intimately connected with the opening parable of the chapter 25 which seems to furnish a sufficient ground for regarding the passage also as referring to the future judgment. Add to verse 43, Matthew uh, Roman numeral 24, therefore Dr. Robinson conceives that our Lord leaves the subject of Jerusalem altogether and takes up a new topic and judges the judgment of the world. It will at once be apparent that the whole of this reasoning is... Uh, Oh my gosh. Let me try to see if I can say this word. Vitiated. Vitiated. I don't know. Vitiated by the false premise with which it starts with the assumption that the parable of the sheep and the ghost refers to the judgment of the human race. We are already shown that this is no new departure at the Matthew 24 verse. Roman number 24 verse 43. <clears throat> I want to finish up this paragraph here and then go back into here. In other words, what we're getting at here is this whole notion of jumping all the way into the future. It makes absolutely no sense, has no continuity, uh, no logic. What only thing that's logical is that when you're talking about a subject, you stay on topic. Especially if the Lord, and he's talking about to his disciples and the what is about to follow them in the judgment of Jerusalem. I think you stay on topic with that. I think, it would, you know, what's going to happen 2,000 years later really doesn't matter. Even if it's 200 years later, it wouldn't make much difference in a sense. And basically, learning this stuff pretty much crushes just about every pastor, every guy who's ever started mega church, uh, the, the priestcraft, and every other con artist out there who's exploited somebody. Uh, they're teaching false doctrine from a false premise all the way. And now we can understand why uh, we could all be considered uh, suffering from some form of MKUltra, some kind of split multi-personality thing where we believe things that aren't real. Part of the problem is because we never really study the Bible because of a requirement to study the Bible. You're going to spend your own time doing it, and if you do do that, well, you're going to find out that you... Um, are going to be in great conflict for the group that you just fell in love with. Again. It's a cruel system we live under. It really is. It's a cruel, wicked system. <clears throat>
The portion relating to the destruction of the city is singularly definite and corresponds very closely with the actual event. End of quote. The punctual fulfillment of the part of the prophecy which comes within the field of human observation is guaranteed for the truth of the remainder which does not fall within the sphere. We shall find in the sequel of this discussion that the events which now appear to many incredible were the confident expectation of the hope of the apostolic age and that the early Christians were fully persuaded of their reality and nearness. We are placed, therefore, in a dilemma. Either the words of, the, of Jesus have failed and the hopes of his disciples have been failed, or falsified, excuse me, or else those words and hopes have been fulfilled. And the prophecy in all its parts has been fulfilled, accomplished, or excuse me, fully accomplished. One thing is certain, the veracity of the Lord is committed to the assertion that the whole and every part of the events contained is the prophecy were to take place before the close of the existing generation. If any language may claim to be precise and definite, it is that which our Lord employs to mark the limits of the time within which all his words were to be fulfilled. Whatever other catastrophes or other nations and other ages there may be in the future concerning them, our Lord is silent. He speaks of his own guilty nation, of his judicial coming at the close of the age, as had been often and clearly foretold by Amalekai, by John the Baptist, and by himself. For this, his words are to be held responsible, but beyond this, all the mere human speculation, hypothesis of theologians, grounded upon no warranty of Scripture. That looks like a good place to stop. <clears throat> wow, we're plugging along here. We're already at uh, 113, page 113. Wow, we're almost, we're a little over one-eleventh of the way. It's a big book, a lot of writing. And I can tell you one thing. I'm fully convinced if I get done with this, I'm probably going to know more about the Bible than 90% of the people out there to call themselves uh, knowledgeable of the Bible. And that's really disturbing. Oh, well. It's not because I'm special at all. It's just because some guy wrote the book. It somehow got buried. But I could see why it would be buried. Be, they're interesting. While they're planning out the creation of the state of Israel, there's just something else going on right along with it. A re-examination of the Bible. And finally, they're actually looking at for what it says. And that it's all about what happened 1,700, 2,000 years ago. And this whole thing about the state of Israel and you being a Jew and all that other stuff, 
Well, it's all false, based on false premises and lies. Either that, or the New Testament is all false, and for some strange reason, the God of the Jews has been silent to them for over uh, two and a half thousand years, to, we'll say 22,000, 2,200 to 2,500 years, which even just, just pretty much says how insane it is to be believing in it. You see, we're in a great dilemma here. If we're honest about things, we're in a great, great, great dilemma. And they can't re well they could they're gonna to try to rewrite history and everything else, but it's darn shame, that's all I gotta say. Hi Michael, guess too, Andrew, how you doing man? Well, I've been going at it for two hours. Um, yeah, I'm gonna close. Hey, thanks for joining me. Um Yeah, and if you want to took up uh the Roy Khan, the uh anti Semitic Jew, the homophobic homosexual and how his great uh, his close connections with uh, Trump <laughs> just gets worse and worse. The only thing we count on is the hope that Jesus Christ and uh, and our heavenly Father that will be merciful to us. So, but uh, yeah, it's I, I tell you what. One thing, Andrew, with the study of the Perusia. Now, you and I and others, if we follow through with this, will probably now understand the Word of God better than 90% of our brothers and sisters out there, which puts us in quite a dilemma. <laughs> I guess that's what it's all about, the pursuit of the truth. So anyways, you take care, Andrew. I hope you're feeling better. And, you know, we haven't talked, but um, I know you were feeling bad a while back. So I hope things are better for you. And uh, thank you once again for... Um, the letter you gave me and the well, the twenty dollars you gave me, thanks. That makes a big difference. So um it does. For one thing, it's gonna help me eat for this week. It's my son, so thank you. <laughs> so and uh be back at it later. So I got I try to plug through this, Andrew, and get as many of these recordings done because I really feel strongly this book is an important thing to share to folks. You know? And uh, it's you know it's an important defense in uh, and keeping us from being manipulated by a lot of uh, or being led by the blind. You know what I mean? There's no point in us being blind with them. So not that we're better than them. We just now know the difference. We can see that what they're doing is just intentionally or not mind control. So. Oh, glory and praise go to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.